Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is good to be back on. Yes, we have a very special guest, Nick Nicolades. Uh, welcome to the show, mate. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I think you'll be familiar to many of our listeners because you're the co-founder of Perla, CEO. You pr- people have probably received emails from you if they're a Perla customer or they've um, been to the Perla website, maybe checked out your profile. Um, we're so happy to have you and Perla as the official broker sponsor of the Australian Finance Podcast. We did a giveaway uh, just last month and um, Thomas from your team sent through an email confirming who won the $1,000 and it was super exciting. So, mate, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to talk about you and everything um, that you've done that led you up to here and we're going to talk about some, I guess, the psychology of investing and what you're building. Uh, But Kate, where did you want to start today? Yeah, I think there's a lot to cover. And I remember in the lead up to this episode, we were having quite a discussion on regret and minimizing regret and now investing and what makes investing simple, um, but not necessarily basic. And I I went on this whole deep dive onto regret minimization (laughs) theory, which uh, I will only touch on briefly in today's episode, but it's really interesting. But I guess, Nick, where I wanted to start was just if you could give us a bit of background into you and your journey um, and how you ended up starting Perla, because I know many of our uh, listeners will be interested given most other brokers, uh, you'll never meet the CEO and they'll probably never step out of their office to say hi. Yeah, well, I mean, for starters, the label of CEO is probably an uneasy one, to be honest, but, you know, we're pretty... (laughs) We're pretty early on in the journey, so you know maybe we can come back to that in a few years. But um, you know, no, like I mean, we we started a few years ago ideating on on what was missing from the investing space, and you know, I think we didn't start out focused on being a broker. I think is the first thing we focused on um, what was happening with young people. This idea that we're all working really hard uh, that. You know, perhaps the next 20, 30, 40 years is going to be a bit different for people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, right? And you're not just going to be able to go to work, put your head down, save a bit of money, and all of a sudden, in your later in life, be, you know, have that house that you bought for nothing. It's going to be potentially a different journey for people. And that was really the start of going, okay, let's build something that's going to help people because if we don't help, younger generations navigate what's potentially going to happen in the next 20, 30 years, then, um, you know, we're we're likely to see probably just this ever-growing divide of the haves and haves-nots. And so, anyway, that's a bit of a fluffy answer, but, um, you know, that's the the truth around how we started thinking about this. We, We looked at all these different ways you could start a business. And at the time, there were heaps of new super funds coming out and there were heaps of neobanks coming out with, you know, cool marketing and debit cards. And we sort of looked at both of those options and were like, wow, they seem like something you need tens of millions of dollars to get off the ground and it may still not work. So, we chose shares because there's something for everybody. There's low low minimums. People have a general understanding of them. Um, the, the ETF product itself had become this new thing that was just super 
easy to use, understand, and we sort of leveraged ourselves into that. So um, that's a little bit of the foundations of how we came to be in shares to start our business. But it's it's always going to come back to what is a holistic wealth platform? What are all the things you need to be successful with money to ensure that all the hard work we all do as young people actually pays off one day? Mm. Hey, Nick, um, for people that haven't used Perla, um, it's one of it, it. It's really striking when you do log in for the first time. Well, firstly, how simple it is, but um, also like some of the features just intuitively make a lot of sense. So, for example, like linking your bank account to your brokerage. For a lot of brokers, it's like you have this kind of like mystical bank account that's somehow linked to your brokerage account. Um, whereas, say with Perla, you can see your wealth inside the platform alongside your shares. So you can see like your cash balance alongside shares um, and your ETFs and whatever and your US shares, whatever. Um, but then also it looks like you're kind of building out a marketplace. And the thing that I probably like most is um, like the automated investing. So like you set a portfolio and then um, depending on whatever rules you put in place, like once my balance gets to a thousand bucks, invest the money, so on and so forth. Um, I think maybe an interesting question just quickly is like, what are you excited about? Like what features are your favorite? Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to be excited about. I think as boring as it sounds, what, what we're doing with the whole topic of automation is, is really exciting. So for those who don't know, we, we launched our product in March of 2021 and it was super, super simple. It was just Aussie shares. There was some community elements where you could see other people's portfolios and we had auto invest. And so apart from auto invest, a lot of it was, you know, pretty similar to what you could get elsewhere. Now, fast forward a year and auto invest is turning into this um, holistic automation tool and it's going to very soon encompass everything from where your salary first goes, distributing that into, say, an emergency fund, your investing portfolio, potentially additional top-ups to your super, even philanthropy. And um, it all comes back to a really simple premise of investing is about making a few really good decisions and then continuing to reflect on your goals your financial position rather than this idea of investing being this transactional thing that you do all the time, right? So to bring it back to real practical terms, what we thought was missing from investing platforms or trading apps, whatever you want to call them, was they gave you these tools and the tools were by, by nature really tactile. So you had to log into your bank. You had to send the money to your broker. You had to log in during the market when you're at work, whatever. Then you had to sit there and look at market depth for a company or an ETF that you really had no sway over the price on at all. And we looked at all these little kinks or hurdles to investing and we thought, well, investing shouldn't be this thing where you're second guessing every step of the way. Should I invest on the Tuesday? Oh, the price has gone up. I'll wait. Now it's Thursday, the price has gone up a bit more. Now I'm like, I've completely lost momentum. So the automation tool and auto invest in general is where we're really focused because we think that's where a key trend of not just investing, but 
everything in life is about simplification, less time, uh, less worrying, all that sort of stuff. So uh, there's a bunch to be excited about in terms of net wealth and yeah, new investing products. But if we can continue to invest in this idea of simplifying and automating your life, the good things, then we can start to kind of offset the fact that credit and bills are decades ahead in terms of automation. Mm. There's a lot of automation in our lives, like you said, with with bills that um, sort of takes away from your financial future, especially if you don't keep an eye on it and renegotiate each year. But I think um, automating when investing, if you have set up a, a solid plan, is a really good way to use technology in your favour to build your financial future um, and really just focus on what's important to you in life rather than, as you as you mentioned, having to think about it every day. When we've been working through this as a company and talking to customers, there's there's a really interesting psychological hurdle for people with automation because, you know, with with a lot more education around not just letting the costs in your life roll on, subscriptions and automation in a weird way for some people has a double-edged sword. So I think the really important thing that we've been trying to focus on is having the tools to automate, but not having the hurdles to switching up or tweaking or doing manual alongside automation. So for us, um, when we found out really early that as a platform, we needed to be just as, you know, just as good, just as useful for someone who wants to log in by at a particular time as for the someone who wants to automate and set and forget. And then the people in the middle who, and there are a lot of them that are automating into say one core ETF or asset. And then they have a bunch of little things when they have spare cash from time to time around that, that they'll go, I'll buy some here or buy some there, or if there's a dip, I'll buy a bit more of this thing. So for us, the future of automation is not this train you get on, it's hard to get off and locks you in. The future of automation is something that um, when it suits you, it makes the next steps as easy as possible. And whether that's sticking with automation or tweaking it or reflecting or stopping, if that makes sense. Um, I was going to say on that, um, that I imagine, you know, the next three or four or five years, a lot of people, um, like probably, well, just yeah, a lot of people, I can't imagine how many, will use Perla for that core of their portfolio via the automation. Um, like that is just such a powerful tool, like it's incredibly powerful, um, which is why I'm so surprised no one else has done it over so long, right? Like it's so obvious that it's so powerful and you guys come in and do it. We're starting to see it pop up a lot in marketing. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. Okay, interesting. A lot of people are putting auto dash invest, auto space invest in their in their ads, and it's basically just direct debit, right? So it's coming. I think people are taking notice, which is great, right? But um, you know, our aim is to continue focusing on improving and improving. So hopefully, staying ahead of the pack is is what we do. So, Nick, one of the things that Perla talks about a lot is the idea of boring investing, and this definitely doesn't mean simple investing, 
But one of the things O and I have talked about on the past on the podcast is that if you want something really exciting, you can go to a music festival or maybe to the zoo. Um, but when it comes to investing, you don't want every day to be the highs and lows, the swings, staring at your investment app on a constant basis and making different decisions and trying to find the next big uh, lithium mining company or something like that. Are you able to talk a bit more about the Perla or your philosophy behind boring investing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's let's just acknowledge, I think, that we've built the platform from the ground up with a lot of people who are non-finance background. I mean, I've got a finance background, but my co-founder, Hayden, who's CTO, um, had, had not invested in, until we were in the ideation phase. So um, I think a lot of things that go along with that are we've never had some brand agency come in and say, here's your angle. We've never had um, consultants come in and say, hey, guys, there's this gap in the market for boring investing. It's just sort of grown a little bit. We put boring on the website a year ago and it's still there. Um, so let's not make out that there's some huge kind of uh, elaborate um, marketing plan around it. For us, it honestly started as just a, a, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek jab at what we saw was happening in the industry where people were taking, I think, advantage of uh, what was happening in the market, the, the huge volatility we saw in 2020, uh, this idea that these stocks were just going up forever and they were pulling people into the industry, which on its own is good, right? It's, it's educating people about share investing. It's getting people in and like myself, getting people to learn by doing, making mistakes. That's all good. Boring investing for us was just a way to grab people's attention and open the conversation that investing didn't need to be this exciting thing that it was made out to be, but not because exciting is bad. It's just that our idea was that the exciting side of investing is rarely exciting on the positive side. And I've been there when I was younger looking at my app, seeing prices go up in fractions of <laughs> dollars and whatnot, and it's in all-encompassing at the time. But you rarely look back and go, wow, that was time well spent or that was good for my mental state or that was good for my finances. So for us, it was, it was just a way to go, hey, here's a different point of view. You can still do everything you want to do. You can still invest. It's still fun. But let's change the dynamic from this game to the fact that you're playing with the money you've worked hard to earn. So let's go the other way. Mm. I see that all the time, Nick. Um, like it's not until you zoom out that you realize that the exciting stuff is often not the thing that leads to wealth creation over the long term. And, um, you know, we see that the longer you stay in the game, um, the longer you have that focus and discipline, the better your outcomes because time does the heavy lifting for you. Um, I think we all go through that phase though, right, where we have that kind of up and down in the emotional side of things. Yeah, and I think for us and the way we've built our platform is that there's no right or wrong answer and it's certainly not this there's a right way to do it and if you don't stick to it 100 percent you're you're out of touch or whatever um and you know we see from our data there's there's not 
there's not this absolute focus on, oh, just being passive or just doing ETFs or just stocks. It's, it's, it's obviously like an individual thing, but you've got to make it work for you. And I think, I think if we focus on what we will have done well if we succeed is, um, giving people the tools to be sensible with most of their money and learn and have fun and grow picking the stock they like. What, what we want to be having a conversation on though is it doesn't have to be one way or the other and you shouldn't necessarily be dumping your 500 bucks or your $10,000 or whatever into all risky stuff or if it, you know, because history has shown that things happen on the stock market. Bad things can happen, I guess. So we're about the conversation. We're about the tools to explore that whole idea of it doesn't have to be one way or the other rather than you should do it this way. I know many of us started um, with trial by fire, investing in shares, not knowing what we're doing, just buying and selling uh, a bit randomly. But have you noticed any trends with investors coming to a platform like Perla and starting with a very simple, low-cost approach to investing that's sort of very grounded and it's not about what stocks move the highest amount this day. Do you see that continuing over time as they keep investing over the years? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that excites us as a team is that obviously we get a lot of data. There's a lot of people coming to us who've made their first investments in the last you know, 6, 12, 24 months, right? Obviously, we don't know what it was like five or 10 years ago, but overwhelmingly, I think the data shows that a lot of people on Perla, a lot of people's first investment is an ETF. And if I look back to my first experience, it was not that, right? So I think, I think the future is really bright. I think the level of education, thanks to people like you and, and you, know, you know, all the different ways people are trying to engage young people is a huge positive. And what we see in terms of the user behavior is in the first two months, people get their portfolios set and they have an average of two to three shares in their portfolio. And, you know, that's predominantly made up of ETFs. As they go on, the behavior is adding more each month. So we're seeing behavior that it's not just putting money in one time and playing with it. And then it, then the last part of that is people are in, you know, customizing, whether it's with a thematic ETF, stocks, you know, we still have, you know, I think the top stocks on Perla will, will be similar to the top stocks on some other platforms. It's just that those top stocks on Perla make up maybe 20%, 30% of the community's portfolio, not maybe switch it the other way around on some other platforms where those top stocks and like, I don't know if we can mention them, but the Zips, those sorts of companies where they're kind of well-known consumer brands, you know, they've been heavily volatile. Um, we still see that. We just don't see it being the predominant part of the portfolio. So that, that makes us feel really good. Even, even if we are a small company and, and growing sustainably, it makes us feel really good that I look at that and I go, that I, I would happily suggest that to anybody mm. hey i'm gonna ask just probe you for one question this is totally like out of left field can you do, do you have you ever noticed if 
that trend in people starting with ETFs could be divided by any type of demographic data. So like male or female, young, v old, like, can you see that? Do you, do you, you might not have it at the top of your head. Um, maybe we can follow you on Instagram and find out if you, if you do get it. Uh, that'd be really cool. Um, oh, no, I mean, a, a huge part of learning about where to invest in our platform is looking at the community data, right? And so we, we focus on this hugely. Um, we set out to build a platform for everyday people. And if you, if you try and break that down into data, you go, well, that means we want to even split in ages. We want to even split in genders and, um, and even split also in people with, you know, putting their first dollar in versus people who have, you know, considerable portfolios. And this is going to sound like it's, you know, conveniently rounded, but it's not. So we're, we're about 50, 50, um, women and men, uh, our biggest cohort, about 50% are, are in that kind of 27 to 35. And then on the, on either side of those age brackets, it's, it's evenly split. Um, so for us as a community, it's, Quite broad. Now, I think your question was about, do you see any differences in investing? And the answer is not on the whole. So when we look at the top 10 assets, there's not a huge amount of skew by age or gender. And it's really exciting because it means that somehow, uh, somehow the education is getting to a 19-year-old and a 40-year-old and we're tapping into we're tapping into this niche of people who are like okay I I get that this is sensible I get that this works it's not a young person thing it's not an old person thing it's not a men thing it's not a women thing it's like it's a mentality and that's what's really exciting to us we're tapping into a mentality rather than a demographic just to give you something that's a bit more kind of exciting though I guess is there there are one or two spaces where we've noticed quite a difference right so. Um, and this is just information. We don't know why this is and we can talk about it, but or we can have assumptions. But when it comes to the top six, seven ESG ETFs, so there's a handful that are Aussie, there's a handful that are global. We, we all know them. Um, they're heavily marketed um, for their various differences. And on those ones, a really interesting thing came to us recently where the skew was more like 70-30. 70% women were investing in these ETFs versus 30% men. So, again, I'm not sitting here saying there's that I know the reasons for that, but it's it's probably the only spot in the community where I say there's, there's definitely something going on there, right? Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating in itself. That's what I was uh, probing for. So, <laughs> so thank you. Oh, good. No, but you know what? There's actually, a, and you know this, but there's a, the way you described your audience is almost exactly that. That's an exact replica of, of the Australian finance podcast. Like we see lots of men and women. That's our principal range. Most people who listen to this show are between like 25 and 35. And then you've got either side of that. Interestingly, we don't have many in the 18 to 24 bracket. In fact, that's our lowest demo 
um, overall. So I find that interesting too. Maybe they're listening to different podcasts. Um, okay, so one of the things we wanted to talk maybe maybe if you've got more jokes on the yeah podcast, we need to get more jokes. I've been trying to start them. JK, watch this space, Nick. Watch this space. Actually, our most popular episode from the last like sixty days is Money and Chill. Um, that was with Monique, our producer. So. Maybe we're, maybe we're going somewhere. Who knows? Um, okay, so a part of this episode, Nick, is we want to talk about regret minimization. Kate and I have been on this bandwagon for quite some time about how we can um, think about regret minimization. And this is important for investors because oftentimes, like we know, we know the data says start early, right? And with that comes a lot of regret when people in their 30s, 40s, 50s say, oh, I wish I started when I was 20, even if I had 50 bucks, Right. Um, and there's this quote from Jeff Bezos, which goes, I knew that if I failed, I wouldn't regret that. But I knew that one thing I might regret is not ever having tried. And we see a lot of investors in this in this space where you're overwhelmed by like analysis paralysis um, and they just think to themselves like, oh, how do I get started? Is it too scary to get started? Um, I saw one um, question on the Perler Exchange, for example, which was basically like, actually, I'm worried about having too much money in the future and what do I do with it? Like there's so many things that come to mind when we think about, you know, how we can, how we're scared or whatever. Um, I guess maybe we can just riff on this as a, as a group here is, and maybe to you first, Nick, is like, how do you see from a financial perspective, people can minimize their regret? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a fairly methodical person. So I think this is a very personal topic, but the way I look at it is the things I've regretted in life, big things, small things, whatever. And we all have little things where we're like, oh, I wish I'd done something different. Um, for me, it's more about going, if I've, if I've done the work or I've, I've done everything reasonable I should have done and it still didn't work out, then I try and rationalize that as going, it's very or it's very hard or you shouldn't pressure yourself with regret if you've actually done the sensible thing. In investing, personally, I probably wouldn't label it as hard as regrets because, you know, I've never made any major, major, major mistakes. I've lost money on stocks, sure. Um, but the times where I do look back and I go, gosh, that was silly, were the times I did no work. Where the times I took a, a silly tip or I thought, oh, I'll just do this for the short-term gain and I'll get out at the right time and never do. So, um, for me, it's less about, uh, you know, you mentioned analysis paralysis before. I know that's a real thing for people. But for me personally, it's, it's a much more fundamental human thing. Like, have you, have you taken the steps? Did you do the right thing? And if it didn't work out, then don't be too hard on yourself. Right. Mm. How do you think about it, Kate? Yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other day and it talked about the fact that you have regrets now is proof that you are not the same person as you used to be and you have grown. And I think in terms of investing, I know we get a lot of questions from people in their 30s and 40s who regret not having started early or having access to that information earlier. And I think it's sad if that stops you from actually getting started in your 30s and 40s. And so I think it's it's good to understand that maybe you could have started earlier if you'd had the resources at the time, but that doesn't mean you can't uh, make a different choice now. And I really would 
say not to let that paralyze you or hold you back. The fact that you could have started earlier, like just forget about that and get started from this point because you can still make a lot of change in your 40s or 50s as well. And and also on that point of analysis paralysis, I know we can get stuck between do I go with XYZ broker or ABC broker or do I buy this ETF or this ETF? And with a lot of these decisions, if you start small and invest regularly, they're not all or nothing. If you want to change your mind next month, next year, you can do that. Maybe there'll be some fees involved. Maybe there'll be some taxes involved, but they're not. You make this decision and you can never change your mind again, which I think is a good thing to think about. Mm. Yeah, I find that like it's really interesting hearing your responses to this because I feel like one, one thing that comes to my mind is that like there's always a sacrifice with whatever decision we make. If there's a decision that we don't make in life. And like for me, if I reflect, so I'm 31, if I reflect back on my 20s, I basically committed my 20s to building a business. Like one of the regrets that people have is, oh, I didn't start a business. Um, and Nick, you know, this Kate, you've done a lot of like side hustles and your own stuff. And even Monique, who's our producer, she's done the same as a freelancer. And you know that like the, the toiling that goes into that, how hard it is. And you have to make a huge amount of sacrifice to get something like that to be successful, right? So now I regret not having more fun in my 20s, right? But if I had more fun, then I might regret not giving this business a go. And so we always have these like regrets, I, I find, um, no matter which path we go on. I think there's this idea of envy, which is probably something that shouldn't come in. Oh, I'm like, I'm envious of someone else went this way. I'm envious of that person's investment portfolio. And we compare ourselves um, and I think that's a different thing which should probably be avoided. But um, for me, like, yeah, I probably, maybe I would have done one or two things differently, but we wouldn't have known that, like you said, Kate, until you get to the point in the future where you can make that decision, right? And you can think like that. I don't know if either of you guys think like that. Like that. What are the things you did, Owen, to prepare for that jump to starting your own business, I think? Because that's, you know, it's not necessarily an investing question. It's more of a, what is the thought process you went through? How did you structure your life? How did you de-risk certain things or not um, so that you could give it the best shot? I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I think the thing, there are certain things that you have to do if you want to start a business. One is you have to be like technically you have to understand the rules like and how things work. So most time, most often that requires doing a trade or you know going to university. So lots and lots and lots of study. And the sacrifice there was weekends and weeknights and the constant feeling, which Kate's going through now doing some more study. And everyone that's listened to this podcast who has studied knows, and you know this, Nick, we talked about it off air. Um, so that was something that like, you have to get um, right because it's only from that point then people begin to respect you for those skills and pay you for that. Um, and the second, I guess the second part of that is, for me at least, was recognizing that if you're going to take a risk, a calculated risk, so you want it to be calculated, you want to take that sooner rather than later so you've got more time to recover from it. That's the way I thought. That was my thought process. So basically like everything in my life, organizing around that. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to do the hard work up front. And this is where that savings comes in. Like we see compounding. And then hopefully it pays off in the future. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of how I approached it. Yeah, I don't even know if that's an answer. Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, it's it's obviously pretty circumstantial to how old you are, you know, 
whether you've got dependents, et cetera. But, you know, for me, I was, I was, you know, 30 or thereabouts when the idea of Perla, maybe I was a bit older than that. Anyway, I was somewhere around there. When the idea of Perla started coming together, um, I was working in a finance job. I had one child, another one on the way. Um, and, you know, my, our third child was born in June 2021, three months after we launched Perla. Um, and that sound, that to a lot of people is going to sound a little bit crazy. Um, and it, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of risk attached to that when you've already got this life set up around you and, and you've got to try and obviously build the business, be present in your family and have a good time. Um, and it, and it is and was a bit crazy, but, you know, coming back to the idea of regret, I, I, I genuinely think I did everything possible to smooth that process. So we sold our apartment a few years earlier. We had plenty of sort of emergency funding, still do. Um, uh, worked out a way to extract myself from my job in a, in a kind of smooth fashion, dropping days over a period mm. so that I could keep some income coming in. Same. And I, I look back at that and I go, I invested my, my life into this business. I did it at a time where things were pretty full on uh, for our family, but I didn't do anything silly. And so even if Perla doesn't become a massive success or it hits trouble in, in the future, I will look back and my partner, Kate, my wife, um, we will look back and we will think, well, we weren't irresponsible. We weren't silly and therefore, even if it doesn't work out, um, there won't be regret attached to that. There'll be hard work, but, you know, that's, that's the way I try and look at everything, big and small. It's like I, did, I, I, I genuinely think we did the right thing either way. I think one of the other things that help minimize that regret as investors is just focusing on what we can control in our own investment universe, such as the fact that we can't necessarily control what the Australian Stock Exchange does next year or for the next 10 years, but we can control how much we put aside each month into our investment portfolio or how we spend our money each month. And I was wondering if you had some thoughts on what are some strategies that we as investors can potentially use to focus on what we can control while we're investing and not get stuck up on all those um, external elements that we actually have no control over? Um, well, me personally, I keep coming back to how, how long are you thinking this is for and how long do you really not need the money for? I know it doesn't sound like very fundamental investing, but the, the some of some of the mistakes I've made is is investing in something, um, not fully figuring out my own liquidity needs. Right. So the, the number one thing you never want to do is sell at the wrong time or sell out before your investments had the opportunity to really do what it's going to do. Right. So for me, the, the first fundamental thing is you know goals are important in in terms of visualizing, but the very very practical manifestation of a goal is how long could this take and and do i have the ability to see it through and and have i managed the risk that i'm going to have to pull the money out early and i think a lot of people myself included will will make that mistake from time to time and and we will look back and we'll go gosh i should have stayed the course that's i think that there's plenty of things that's the one thing that comes to my mind i don't know what about you guys yeah, 
Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it's an interesting segue here because we talked about obviously businesses and private businesses like um, Nick and I sharing those, like taking that risk. A lot of investors um, who are investing in the stock market tend to forget that we are investing in businesses as well. So you are taking a very similar risk um, with your finances. It's just not the kind of the time and effort that goes into it, which is why the stock market is such a great thing to, to invest in because you get exposure to businesses um, and you can do that with, if you use an ETF, you get hundreds of businesses in many ETFs. So um, I think what you can control is you can control how you interact with the market, but uh, what you can't control is what decisions are made at businesses, um, what other investors are doing. So I think really, if you just take a step back, a lot of the conversations that people have about investing and the frustrations we have is like, well, why doesn't this stock go up? Or my stock's down. Or the- You can't control any of that. No matter how much you complain or how much you get worried about it, you can't. Really, all you can just do is step back and think, well, what can I control? Fees. I can control how much I invest, how often I invest, um, and I can set my goals in the future. So each of those things, how can you make them easier on yourself, I guess, is the, the, the key point. Um, and oftentimes, it all comes back to behavior, um, which is where we probably should spend a lot more time. Yeah, I don't. I know the time frame is an interesting one because it's quite easy when you're starting to say, "Oh, yeah, I've got a ten or twenty year time frame." But life changes so often; your goals change often. You might not think you want to buy a house for five years, and suddenly you do want to buy a house this year. So, um, in one respect, you can you can invest with that long term time frame, but then also you have to be able to adapt the plan as as life changes. Yeah, definitely, and I think you know. No- and adjacent to that is if you believe in a company and you believe in the long-term prospects and you invest in a company, um, I think there's a lot of, you know, much more credentialed investors out there than me that will say something like, don't get tied too heavily to your initial decision if you feel like the leaders of that company or the direction of that company has changed or they're not living up to what you thought they were going to do, whether it's, international expansion or whatever. And, you know, I think whether it's focusing on how your life has changed and that not being, you know, not restricting yourself from making the right decision or, 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 or not getting caught up in the fact that maybe that wasn't the best decision to invest in that company because they haven't lived up to it. And all this other spectrum in, in the middle, it's like, don't be too hard on yourself if, if things do change and, and try and really reflect on what your what your situation is now and and go well i'm not going to necessarily be driven by a, a decision i made 2 years ago now that the life or the world or whatever has dramatically changed and that's okay yeah i guess it comes back to that changing your mind when the facts change like you don't have to uh, i think a lot of people when getting started they think once they make that decision that's the only decision they can make they have to invest with that broker or that etf forever but you can you can keep changing your mind. Like you don't want to be changing every day because that's going to become a very costly and time-consuming exercise, but you can change your mind. And I think if you know that, that makes taking that first step a little bit easier because if you pick a broker that's not the right broker for you, you can open another brokerage yeah. account. You're allowed to have multiple ones. No, and the technology just gets better and better, right? So, you know, on mm. on on ETFs and stocks and on apps, the switching costs are getting to the point where they're not, material right there might be tax implications that you've got to figure out which means you don't want to be changing your mind all the time but um you know i think that for this idea that 
you know, let's let's focus on some community data that that I think is a little bit relevant here. It's like we see a lot, kind of two different behaviors. One is, you know, we talked about ESG before. It's a good topical example. We see a lot of people start with a basic index. And then all of a sudden, they'll stop investing in that index and switch to a slightly different version of that index, whether it's um, ESG or not, right? They'll, they'll just switch. They won't sell. And that person, if we just try and think of that persona, we go, that person has made a few decisions there. They've made a decision to change course, which is totally fine. But they've also made a decision to go, I don't feel strongly enough that I need to sell out like it's this big move I'm making. So I'm not going to sell out of all of my non-ESG indexes and go straight into ESG because there's taxifications I don't need to, it's costs that I just don't need to. Then at the other end of the spectrum, there are those people, and there's no right or wrong here. There are those people who go, I'm making a decision. I'm going to change direction. I'm going to sell out of all that stuff. I'm going to go whole, wholeist into this other, you know, slightly different direction. And I think the reason I bring that up is... Um, the fact that those people are making those different decisions just gives an example of the many, many ways you can change your mind, uh, the many ways you can do that and and not cause yourself stress. So for some people, the stress of having the old stuff in their portfolio might just stress them out too much and that's okay. Move on. Um, I think that's an interesting thing that we're seeing a lot of. Yeah, and I guess it comes back to really getting to know yourself as an investor and what makes you comfortable and sleep at night, whereas you might be comfortable managing a portfolio of more ETFs or you might want to bring it back and make it as simple as possible. And I think that also helps with not doing the whole journey alone. And that's something that I remember we both spoke about at the the Get Rich Slow Club in Melbourne a few months ago was the fact that you don't want to be doing all of this by yourself because it is overwhelming. Whether you build a community of people in person or you find people online, actually having people to share each step of the investing journey with. And when you run into roadblocks, when you've got all those quote unquote silly questions about um, where do I find my ETF distribution and things like that, you've got people to ask about that. And I'd love to hear, Nick, a bit more about your thoughts on building your own investment community and how you see that helping people during their investment journey. Um, Yeah. I mean, are you... Are you talking about the how Perler is approaching it or, or, or how we can all build our own mini communities around us, I guess? They're two different Probably things. both. Yeah, okay. Um, well, very simply, you know, Perler's idea of community was, was to try and tap into that mentality of let's, let's, let's be open, let's share, but also let's do it in a way that is not this competitive environment of this is the, this is my thesis on this stock. Uh, you're wrong on that stock. Oh my God, I can't believe you bought that stock because there's enough of that, right? That exists. And what we felt very strongly about was going, there's, there, there has to be, or we think there's a lot of people out there who really want to engage in that conversation. They just don't want to engage in the typical stock trading conversation. And so we, we tried to build a platform, a home, uh, a, a, a space for discussion that we're still working on that goes, um, let's tap into a mentality that perhaps isn't catered to in the Reddits of the world or some of the Facebook communities. That's, so that's pretty simple for Perla. Um, you know, personally, I think you, if I, if I think back 
um, my, my personal finance networks started with colleagues and I was working in finance. So that was a pretty natural thing to me. But I think, I think the fundamental thing there is finding one person or a few people that you can just be honest with about whether it's about something that you think is a silly question or whether it's something really fundamental. Like, do, do you think this company is a good company? Find one person, then find another person and, and get yourself into a position where you can just talk honestly about the things that worry you or whatnot. And, you know, whether you're on a huge forum with thousands of people or whether you're just talking to one or two people, they're both equally helpful, I think. And it just depends on your personality. You know, I, I still talk about investing with one or two people. Um, and, you know, I've, that's probably helped me more than anything else in life is just having those one or two people that I think are smart. Mm, same. Um, yeah, I've got a, like one or two friends that um, I talk to always about different things, whether it's ETFs or companies. Like we started a journey around a similar time. And even Kate and I talk a lot. Obviously, we talk every day about investing. Um, and it's just it's just great to have that that community around you. Um, so, Nick, we've got some questions we want to wrap up with. Um, and these are more like short um, punchy questions and answers. Um, so I'm going to catch you completely off guard here. Um, and we'll just see how we go, I guess. Uh, so Nick, what is your number one lesson for investors? Number one lesson for investors is focus on yourself because your personality, your brain, your personal situation is, is more important to the decisions you make than what anyone else says. Mm-hmm. Nice answer. Like it. I like it. <laughs> What's your favorite investing resource? Well, I'm going to be a bit annoying here and say Perla's rankings. No, I don't, and I'm genuine in that. I, I, I still, even even though I work for the business, um, I still get a little bit of a buzz landing on the shares page and seeing, ooh, that ETF's actually jumped up into the top 10. Wonder what's happening there. Um, so, it's it's not interactive. It's not engaging. It's just like literally a ranking, right? And I and I just like that because it's unfiltered. I like it. Sorry. Yep. Humans are obsessed with rankings. We rank everything, so there's probably something to it in our psychology there. Okay. Um, and final question, easy one. How do people learn more about Perla? Like, where can we go? Um, well, thanks to people like you. They, they can hear from, from this conversation and others that you have and maybe even a little ad at the start of the podcast. Um, so sorry for that one. But um, so I think, you know, where can people learn more about Perla? You, you know, obviously we've got a website and we, we try and put ourselves into that website and you can definitely get a feeling on our about page who we are as people. Who's, you can literally see who's in the team, who's building the platform. Um, I think, though, if you really want to understand our nerdy, self-made vibe, um, and I'm not saying it's like prolific, but our, our socials, like our Instagram, is 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 definitely something that we don't even have a social media person or a marketing person, but it's kind of this hodgepodge of things we think about investing, a bit of data, um, a few really bad jokes. Some of the best memes. Yeah, a few really bad jokes, and. and <laughs> If you, if, you, if you really want to get a feel for who we are as people and, and how that then manifests into the platform, that's, you know, Pearl HQ is, is a good place to start, I think. Um, and then, sorry to keep going on, but 
when we started this, before we even had a platform and a product, uh, myself and my co-founders sat down and each separately wrote a bit of a story about why we were starting this journey. And, um, you know, it's got some corny stuff in there, but it's, it's still the truth. And like every once in a while, I'll click on the link weirdly and, and read the first paragraph or two. And it kind of reminds me a lot of why we started this journey. And so, you can you can find those at our blog page if you sift through a lot of the other stuff we've done. But um, you know, you get a. I think what you'll find is you get a really human, personal view. Mm. Actually, when I received an email from you, I don't know how long ago this was. That's actually the first thing I read because you've got it in your email signature. This is why I'm founding Perla, uh, which is pretty cool. So you can also we'll put all links in the show notes to that. Um, you can also check out the Rask um, Perla profile page, so you can. You know, if you want to learn a little bit more about us, you can see um, some of the things that we've uploaded to Perla as well. Um, we're also um, reasonably active on the Perla Exchange if you have questions. Um, and you can use the coupon code RASK when you sign up. Just for full disclosure, we do not receive like a volume-based thing. It's not like an a f- typical affiliate code. It just helps us so we know who's coming through the community. Um, and you also get Perla credit when you when you join. So that means you can get free brokerage for a little while um, up to a certain limit, which is 50 bucks. Um, but given trades are what, $6.50, Nick, you get a fair bit of you get a, a fair bit of time to, to use that as well, six months. So um, it's pretty it's pretty rad. Um, go check it out. Um, it will be all available in the show notes. Uh, Nick, it's been our absolute pleasure. We get to chat to you pretty often, but um, yeah, we're stoked that you, you joined us on the Australian Finance Podcast, mate. Thanks for coming on. Thank you both for having me and I just really appreciate you didn't put me on the spot with any sort of joke requirements. <laughs> well, that's next time. So, now that, you know, first one you get off for free, the next one, um, watch out, we're coming for you. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. We'll be looking for some brokerage jokes. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Thanks for joining me, Kate. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rask.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.